0: the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, greetings to everyone in the precious name of Jesus, that uh, great shepherd of the sheep. I'd invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12 this morning. So this morning, on the, for a message, I would like to look here at chapter 12 of Romans, uh, but I will give you a bit of background before we get into the message. The, uh, I guess it's turning into a series, at least, uh, asking the question or answering the question or statement, why do we identify as Anabaptist? And I've had two messages on that and had some requests for continued messages. And so I've been a bit uh, conflicted in my mind as to which direction exactly it should take. So this morning, when we look at Romans chapter 12 the question that we should try to answer in our mind is what does a real Christian look like? And I believe that was one of the central issues in the what the time we think of as the Anabaptist days or the Anabaptist Reformation. It's often referred to as the Reformation in 1517, and then the Swiss Brethren began in 1525, and for the next following decades would have been time known as the Reformation, and as you recall, I mentioned the book that refers to the Anabaptists as the stepchildren of the Reformation. In that their beginnings, they attributed and credited some of the early uh, Reformation leaders as, as kind of the catalyst for their direction and their understanding, but they went a good bit farther because they said just to try and reform, the Roman Catholic Church is not enough. We must go to the truth to the source, and they saw themselves as recapturing the vision and the direction or the the principles of the early church, not as starting a new religion, but trying to recover the truth. And in that search, they had to continually, by going to the scriptures And being directed by the word of God, they had to consider, what does the word of God teach us? Are we following what the word of God says? Are we obedient to it? And what defines a real Christian? And if you can define a real Christian, you can also define what a real church would look like. Now we can turn to a number of scriptures Uh, For example, the Sermon on the Mount would be an excellent picture of what a real Christian looks like from the words of Jesus. These sayings of mine and those who follow them, those who obey them and do them, are the real Christians. Those who do not do them, they may hear them, but they do not do them. That's for our memory work for the next time. That man is like one who builds his house in the sand and it will come to ruin. Just prior to that, in the verses we recited today, is about... um, Jesus made it clear that not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now... There are several errors that are very common throughout church history. One of them is what we might think of as work salvation or a earning our entrance into heaven by the good works which we do. And in that day of the Anabaptists, that was very common. They actually taught that your good works are what gains you entrance into heaven and the more good works you do, the less time you have to spend in purgatory. Well, that was a false concept from from the start, but the idea was that you accumulate a number of good works, and one man even taught that you could uh, buy your good works. You could pay a certain amount of money, and good works accredit credit to your account, and And all those kind of things, and even if you pay some money your, your ancestors or your family who went to purgatory, you might be able to reduce their amount of suffering if you paid certain sums of money. Well, the Anabaptists saw that as abominations, a corruption, a complete error of what the Word of God says about what it means to be a Christian. The Anabaptists also had to uh, struggle against the concept that just everybody in a given region is Christian because they're actually required to be so and if they go in infancy and are baptized at the cathedral, they're in the kingdom. And... They can live, they grow up, and they can live as they please as long as they give regular attendance to the, at the cathedral and follow some of the rules and policies, and, and you're in the kingdom. And again, the Anabaptists said, not so. A man enters into the kingdom by a new birth, and he becomes a transformed person by the Spirit of God He passes from death unto life. And when that has occurred, that is confirmed by baptism, as taught in the scripture. And so they rejected infant baptism and embraced a believer's baptism. And that became, oftentimes, a death sentence. And you may ask, why was that such an issue of contention? Well, I believe that in the spirit world, there there is a very clear declaration, as the scripture says, that when you are baptized unto Christ, you die to the old world, to the old man, and there is a new life, and that is why the world hates that. It is a condemnation of the world, as the uh, as it says in Peter, it likens it unto the flood and the souls that were saved by water. And in that passage, it talks about the world perishing. Uh, so the the water was the, the reason why the people perished, but for those eight souls, they were saved by water. So, and it makes it clear in that passage, likening it unto baptism, that it's not the baptism itself that saves you, but it's that answer of a good conscience toward God. Now if we want to identify as Anabaptist which we do I think we want to and I think we do right to identify as Anabaptist. However claiming to be an Anabaptist or identifying as Anabaptist is not what saves you. Not everyone that says Lord, Lord Will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we, as the Anabaptists did, must also embrace this concept that we must constantly define what it means to be a real Christian. Let us love not in word, but in deed. Now it is important to use words to express our love, but It has to be a lot more than just words. There has to be action. There has to be a reality that follows the words. Else they are just vain jangling. So, what identifies someone as a real Christian? So the message this morning is not so directly just about the Anabaptists, As it is for us to do like they did, search the scriptures, and agree on what it means to be a real Christian. And here in Romans chapter 12, I want to go through this passage, I'll just be reading and commenting as we go, a bit of an expository message. And there are dozens of principles, statements, instructions, commandments that there's plenty to go around for everyone this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, something that could touch your life. But as we go through it, I would also like for us to keep in mind the big picture What we're looking at here is to define what it means to be a real Christian. Now if you find yourself coming short on some of these, don't despair um, or think, well, this means I am not a Christian. Let me speak about that a bit because it's very important for us to be firmly settled that a person's entrance into the kingdom and their assurance of everlasting life is based on the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done to transform our old man into a new man. So these principles in Romans chapter 12 cannot be done in in their entirety or or hardly in any way, by a carnal man, a man who has not been transformed, one who has not passed from death into life. The assumption here is that he's addressing brethren, those who have become believers, children of God, and joined together by that common faith of Jesus Christ. So... It it does talk about that conversion in the early verses there, but these are not just things that we add on, like uh, sometimes the term we we turn over a new leaf, that's not really Christian vocabulary. Uh, but the scripture does use terms like putting on the new man. Now we cannot receive the new man or have the new man aside from the the power of the Spirit of God working in a, in a life. But neither can we just say, well, I received the Spirit of God and so I'm good to go. Everything, whatever I choose to do is therefore fine. no. There has to be a diligence to walk in the principles of God. So let's go through here in Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now commenting on that verse he begins by addressing brethren and he's appealing to the mercies of God in recognition that whatever we do or receive here is by the mercies of God. It was by his mercy that he saved us. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now that is very interesting in that usually sacrifices die. In the Old Testament, that was the understood thing that a sacrifice, you brought your animal or even if it was a... um, Well, they usually didn't call the other offerings sacrifices necessarily, but... In the shedding of blood, there was a death. Now here he calls it a living sacrifice. And while it is simple, in in one sense it's also very profound. Is that as you give yourself as a sacrifice, surrendering your life to God, it is a living one. Meaning that it continues to function. It's not just a giving up the life and then then it's over and there's death and it's gone. It's you uh, take up your cross daily. You die daily in the sense that you're giving yourself as a sacrifice. And he says, holy, a holy sacrifice means devoted unto God, set apart for his service, acceptable unto God. And just know that this is what God expects, and it is acceptable to him. Then he says, which is your reasonable service. That word reasonable there has the idea of logical or a it has more to do with, with your mind and the word applied together than it does to the actual actions of what is to follow. That is to say that this living sacrifice that we make engages our mind, our will, and logic. It is, a, it is something we apply our mind to. It's not just that we now have this list of rules, but it's we engage our mind and set our affection on things that are above. It's not just, again, a a rote list of rules that uh, we just, well, this is just how it's done, but rather we engage our mind. It's our reasonable, our thought-through Service to God, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That means is that we are not to be stamped into the image of this world. Now, you've heard this many, many times, but I want to emphasize the principle of what it means when it's talking about the world, that we are not to be stamped into the mold. There are other places in Scripture where it talks about the rudiments of the world, the elements of the world, and what that means is those Thinking patterns, those motivations and reasons by which the world decides to do what they do. We are to have a different mind. Our mind is to be transformed, It's It's like that caterpillar turned to a butterfly. It is a complete change of how we think. The elements of the world have to do with pride, the lust of the flesh, desires for pleasures, which lust of the flesh is is linked intimately with that, and things like greed, hatred, anger. Those are the elements of the world. And when our life is transformed away from that, we no longer choose to do things because our flesh lusts for it. We choose not to do things based on pride. We do not let our lives be governed by anger. We, that is to be crucified. We no longer allow those elements of the world to stamp us into their mold. Now, you've heard that many, many times, but I just want to reemphasize that's what it means when it talks about not being conformed to this world. Let me just make that practical. Um say, clothing. And you've heard that many times, that we're not to be like the world in our clothing. Well, I hope we understand that there's a lot more to it than just say, well, this piece of clothing is of the world and this piece of clothing is not of the world because they are, after all, elements or made of those the, the things of the world <laughs> you know the the actual fabric but here's the key difference in what a christian chooses to do versus what the world chooses to do the world chooses to to identify to to establish themselves whether it be through pride fashion or status Uh, importance in the world, or to impress people, motivated by pride, by the lust of the flesh, uh, possibly jealousies, and, and so on, that is what motivates their choices. And so, much of what you see in the store to purchase appeals to those, you know, certain things of this world. And so, as a Christian, we choose to be guided by different principles. We choose attire that conforms to God's standards. And you may say, well, there is a lot of differing views and contentions about what, how that's to be identified. Well, that's true. I'll I'll grant you that. But there are principles by which we need to abide in our choices. And as we'll see later, it talks about the importance of being of one heart and one mind. So there is a place for making some agreements together. What identifies as separate from the world? Going on in verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, that every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So, here Paul appeals to, or comments, that the grace that he, (coughs) excuse me, Through the grace given unto me. He repeats that in verse 6, which we'll read in a minute. But it also says that it is given to us, this grace. So that connects back with the first verse where it says, By the mercies of God. God is the one who gives grace. To be able to do what he asks of us. And in verse 3 he's making a clear statement about humility. All of our lives should be guided by humility. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Remember the elements of this world. Not being stamped into the image of the world. Because pride is of the world. It's part of this world system. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. Now, this right here about being one body in Christ was another thing that the Anabaptists held very highly. They believed in a brotherhood, not just a a word conformity to the what was expected. Everybody's supposed to go to the cathedral, everybody gets baptized in their infancy, and everybody is supposed to go at regular appointed times, and keep the feasts, and, and keep the rituals. But if you read what the uh, Anabaptists wrote, it was evident that the people of society, which claimed to be Christian, practiced all manner of wickedness. They, saw, they had no regard to their actual character and, and standing before God. They would eat and drink with the drunken. They were thieves and murderers and liars and and those who were caught up with um, lusts and, and desires of money and wealth. And they said, that is not the body of Christ. That is not those who are Joined unto Christ and should be joined to each other. So they were firm believers in a brotherhood. A united body of true believers. Verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. It's, It's given. Whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness." Now I would summarize this section by just saying that every one of us has a gift in the body. It's not just those who have been appointed to a certain task. It's not just those who are ordained to some office. Every one of us has a gift or gifts, plural, that we should be exercising in the body. And what he's explaining here, I, I think, his primary thrust here is that these gifts are to be uh, exercised and used with some, uh, with some purpose and and diligence applied to it. He says, um, ministry. Let us wait on our ministering, or let us let it um, let it have its work, uh, let it be exercised. That, that's the idea here. And what is ministry? Ministry is serving, serving tables, the work of a deacon, but not just those ordained as a deacon, but those who are willing to serve. Those who want to be the greatest in the kingdom, let him be your minister. And you can minister one to another. Uh, It could be, as he says here, uh, in verse 8, he talks about exhortation. I believe it's uh, in another chapter in Romans that Paul says that he he trusts that they are able to exhort one another. Just as brethren. Exhort one another. So again, you don't have to be, uh, have formal recognition as the exhorter. You can exercise the gift of exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. That has the idea with with pureness of heart, just a just a very earnest and straightforward he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. all of these things are to be done with um i believe if we tie it with what he says in verse uh, one where he calls it your reasonable service your your thought through your your intent your your heart is into it it's not just that you have this book of rules that this is how it should be it's what is in your heart that you want to do these things you desire to do them and and you exercise yourself in that. Verse nine: Let love be without dissimulation. We don't use that word dissimulation very much in our ordinary uh, conversation. It simply means without any um, hypocrisy or or a um, or a secondary motive. There's something that's genuine. Abhor that which is evil. I wonder how often you have pondered that very instruction there. Do you all abhor that which is evil? If you found yourself this past week tempted with the lust of the flesh this would have been a good verse and I hope you may have done it to remind yourself that you are to abhor that which is evil. If you spoke angrily or responded angrily Think about abhorring that kind of behavior. Abhor that which is evil. And you can put in whatever else it was that is not of God, that is after this world, we are to abhor that which is evil. It was interesting to me as I studied a bit in this word abhor, The other similar usage is where it talks about people being haters of God. So the idea here in Abhor is hating. You hate even the garments spotted by the flesh. And we are to be lovers of God, not haters of God. But if you think of someone who is a hater of God, he wants to put God out of his thinking. He does not want to acknowledge any responsibility toward God. He, he does not like to even be um, reminded of things that are moral and things that he ought to be doing. He's a hater of God. Well, we are to abhor that which is evil. Abhorring that which is evil is an evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life. It may not be one of those things that appeal to us as as an evidence of spirituality, but it is because we should be abhorring that which is evil and by contrast cleave to that which is good. Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Now he mentions this several times throughout this passage about love, brotherly love, should be without hypocrisy, should be genuine. And in this verse, he's particularly appealing to the emotion, the reality of the emotion that goes with it. Not just a a specific action, but, but to do it with our mind. It is our reasonable service. Verse 11, not slothful in business fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In another place he says that what we find to do with our hands, we should do with, what does he say, uh, do with all our might. <clears throat> Not slothful in business. Now, we may tend to think, as we use the term business, <clears throat> we think of the men who have a business. Well, your business could be anything you do for work, and that could apply to the sisters as well as the men. It doesn't mean business as in just an occupation where you're trading in goods or whatever, but That which is your realm of labor and service, you should not be slothful in. Fervent in spirit. That is one of the marks of a true Christian. One who is fervent in spirit. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. When you think of these several instructions here, and apply it to our daily life, We might take example from the children of Israel who it says these things happened unto them for in samples to us. But God was not pleased when they complained about their difficult situations and circumstances. When they were short on water, they complained. When they found the waters bitter, they complained. Uh, When the way got hard, they complained. And when they got tired of the manna, they complained. And God was not pleased. So when we rejoice in hope and are patient in tribulation, does that mean that we everything's fine? We have no troubles? Well, not really. What that means is that in spite of our troubles, we are able to rejoice in hope. And in spite of our tribulation, we exercise patience and continuing instant in prayer. We have the idea of a readiness to pray and seek God's face. And if you look at the entire example of the children of Israel time after time it was like God put things in their path that his desire was for them to turn to him to make their requests to him to appeal to him for their salvation for their help in this time of extremity. And as you read the case there when they did those things, when they actually turned to the Lord, then God would come through with deliverance, with provision, with, with sustenance for them. And yet, I guess they're too much like us. After months have gone by and a year or two has gone by and we forget God's mercy back here, And we tend to start complaining about our new trial. And and do not think to just be instant in prayer and make our appeal to God for help. Verse 13, Distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Distributing to the necessity of saints. That was one of the characteristics that was widely noted among the Anabaptists. And I don't know why their day should be any different than ours, particularly in that sense, that we are a people who minister And give aid to those who have need. Distributing to the necessity of saints. One of the hymns we sang here in the opening. uh, Fold to thy heart thy brother. And I'm sorry I can't quote all all the lines there. But it is talk there about giving. Giving aid to those who have need. And of course, fourteen, verse 14, bless them which persecute you. That was very real in the life of the Anabaptists. Verse 16, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, there's that um, humility again. But condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. This would be good for us to remember that our manner of life, if we are of a more high-minded, it's pretty easy to pass by those who have need. Uh, And We don't even really think about it that we might be high-minded, but if we live in such a way that we're way up here in our lifestyle, in our money, in our where we go and what we do, it'll be hard for us to even see or understand those who are of low estate and they will not be particularly attracted to us. They they see us as living up here. So there needs to be some reality to where we apply our thinking to how we can not mind high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Those who are persecuted suffer great evil, and the instruction here is to not recompense evil for evil. Verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That includes those who are not of our assembly, or not even Christian. There may be times when it's not possible to be much at peace. If They they might not be so minded, but as much as is possible, on our part, we should be living peaceably. With them, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, if he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, these verses here were very real in the lives of the Anabaptists. They were often uh, apprehended, brought before rulers and before the courts and put on trial for their sedition or their heresies as it was called. And the in, in that day, it was deemed necessary by the powers that were the church, as they called themselves, considered themselves priests of God. They believed that force should be applied to people to require them to be good. And therefore, they would persecute those who did not conform to the church ways. And so the Anabaptists, In many of their appearances before judges and the rulers, the magistrates, they would tell the magistrates that they do have their jurisdiction, their suppressing of evil, but it should never be applied in matters of conscience toward God that men would be forced under pain of of imprisonment to go to church or that, that those who did not adhere to the instructions of baptizing their infants should therefore be put to death or persecuted. But rather they they appealed and said that God's instructions are to, to not avenge, but rather give place to wrath. And... If you had an enemy, you should do him good and not evil. And so they had many occasions to remind those who claim to be Christian of what God expects of a real Christian. One who does not persecute, one who does not uh, exact vengeance, one who lives in peace, and one who... Would rather, (coughs) excuse me, would rather feed an enemy rather than do him evil. So, what is a real Christian? That was the question. That they had to answer time after time. And not just, it was not just an exercise to, so that they could give an account when they stood before the judge. Their concern, first of all, was that they might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How does God want us to live? God wants real Christians. He wants real brethren who dwell together in unity and those who have been transformed by the renewing of their mind. Those who have passed from death into life and all of these things that we read here So, in summary, I would just say again, we have the same responsibility that the Anabaptists did. And that is to really apply ourselves to understand what a true Christian is. There are, as I said maybe at the beginning, several major errors. There are those who go into the ditch of of some formal uh, tradition that loses sight of any reality in the Christian life. And the other side might be those who profess with words to be Christian, um, but have a very loose interpretation of what that means and make little effort to, to discern what is truly the will of God. And those also, as Jesus said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. So it is incumbent upon us to be discerning what the will of the Lord is and to so order our lives that that we might be pleasing to him. May the Lord bless with that.